What a beautiful and powerful song. It really goes along well with my message today as we think about drawing near to the Lord and Him drawing near to us, what it means to live lives of devotion and walking the walk of faith. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to consider verses 33 through 39 in the end of the chapter. So I continue on in the series, Jesus Came to Seek and to Save, with a message focusing on the old and the new, and specifically the subject, they will fast in those days. As we've gone through these early chapters in the Gospel of Luke, we have discovered storylines about Jesus that reveal to us who he is and what he came to accomplish. He's presented in his birth as the long-awaited Messiah. John the Baptist announced Jesus as the Messiah when the time came publicly and called on people to repent and to believe in Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was baptized in the Jordan River. The Spirit of God descended like a dove. The voice of the Father from heaven rang down, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He was tempted by the devil. He was there 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying. And he overcame that temptation and the challenge that was presented to him in his mind, in his body, in his spirit. And after that time of temptation, he moved into his public ministry and he began to teach and to heal and to perform miracles. He was there in the Galilee region in the northern part of Israel, and Jesus called his disciples to come and to follow him. No sooner had he called his disciples to come and follow him than opposition began to arise against him. The religious leaders of his day began to oppose what he was doing because they saw Jesus not as the long-awaited Messiah, but as a threat, as someone who was coming against their way of doing things. And I want to look at these few verses together really progressively as we go along this morning, beginning in verse 33 with the question that came for Jesus. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. The law of God required only one fast in the entire year, and that one fast that was prescribed for the people was on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, of course, being the foreshadowing of what was going to take place in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God. It was the time for the nation of Israel to come together and for the high priest to enter in to the inner sanctuary of the temple to make sacrifices for the sins of the entire nation. And they fasted around this time as a sign of consecration and devotion to God. Over time, their fasting began to multiply, not because it had been prescribed by God to multiply, but simply because they turned it into a religious activity rather than a sign of devotion to God. They held these fasts in varying lengths and varying times, whether it be from sunset to sunset or whether it be for three days or seven days or 40 days. Uh, The Pharisees themselves fasted twice a week. That was part of their ritual. And their manner of fasting was to appear down 
so that everybody around them would know that they were exercising this religious devotion to God. Jesus condemned their practice, as we'll see in a few moments here in the scripture as well. Now, why were John the Baptist's disciples also fasting along with the Pharisees? Perhaps it was because of the hardship that John the Baptist was facing because of his service to the Lord and because he was coming against error with truth. Or perhaps they simply were following the pattern of the Pharisees. But Jesus replied to the question that is posed in verse 33 and verse 34. And he said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? This is sort of a rhetorical question. The obvious answer would have been no. Jesus was comparing his presence among the people to that of a wedding feast. Several times in the Bible, the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and the church, is described as a bond of love between a bridegroom and a bride, a close relationship. Friends of the groom, of course, would have been close to the groom, and a wedding was a time of feasting and celebration. We think about weddings being feasting and celebration as well, but in those days, it was even more expanded. A Jewish couple would stay for a week-long time of feasting and celebration, and the bride and groom would be honored, and the wedding guest would have been exempted from any type of fasting during this time of feasting. So the idea that the wedding guests would fast while the feast and the celebration was going on would have been absurd. Likewise, the disciples of Jesus mourning while he was speaking words of life and performing works of mercy would have been just as absurd. Now, I think that our Lord was a joyful person. I think the very presence of Jesus amongst the people brought joy to their hearts. His presence encouraged a sense of security. The words of Jesus uh, encouraged a sense of well-being. Life was a continual feast and celebration in the presence of the Son of God. And by the way, this is what we are now anticipating as we await his return or we await our departure. Uh, we look forward to that time when we'll not be weighed down by the sin and the struggle of this world and will be in the presence of God. That'll be part of what the joy of heaven will be all about is being in his presence and experiencing that celebration forevermore. And the gospel is good news. The good news should bring joy to our hearts. So the point is a time of feasting and a time of fasting do not mix. And then Jesus adds in verse 35, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. We'll come back to this statement in verse 35, really as the main idea of the passage here in just a few moments. Then Jesus tells them a parable which serves as a commentary on the entire situation. Verse 36, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, uh, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. This first illustration is taken from the idea of patching clothes. And if a piece torn from a new garment is used to patch an old garment, both are impacted because of that. The new one because it's been torn, the old one because it's received a patch that does not match it. 
Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking only about garments here. He's talking about a broader spiritual idea. And that broader spiritual idea is that he had come to manifest the kingdom of God among the people. And he came in fulfillment of the old covenant. He instituted the new covenant, which would be signed, sealed, and delivered by his blood and authenticated by the power of his resurrection. And Jesus is saying, you can't get bound up in these old ways of doing things when in fact, I've come to do something new. Don't try to mix the new with the old. There's no place for legalistic attitudes and actions when grace has come. Verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. The second illustration reinforces the first. They would take the skin of a goat or a sheep and they would make it into a wineskin to hold the wine. They would stitch it together and nobody would have thought to put new wine into old wineskins. Jesus is making the same point here. And he says in verse 38, no, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, verse 39, wants new because he says the old is better. The legalists were caught up in their traditions. They rejected the life-giving ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They clung so closely to the past that they were not open to the manifestation of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring about. God's kingdom was realized in Jesus. And the message fulfilled Old Testament promises as the Messiah had come to complete what nobody else could complete. So think about it this way. The new covenant is not contrary to the old covenant. It is instead a realization and a fulfillment. It is also a manifestation of the king in his kingdom. Now back to verse 35. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Is the time Jesus is referring to here, the brief period between his crucifixion and his resurrection as some commentators have actually set forth? Or is the time Jesus is referring to the church age between his ascension back into heaven and his return? To ask the question more directly related to the subject, is the time of fasting and devotion in this way past? Or is fasting an applicable spiritual discipline for today as we serve God, share the gospel, and anticipate the return of Jesus? I think the answer is the latter. Because of the practice of the New Testament church after the ascension of Jesus because of the practice of the church in the early days as it began to multiply. And I think until the ascended bridegroom returns, fasting is a spiritual discipline that we may very well practice. Now, what is fasting? It's abstaining from food and water or drink or some combination thereof for a specified time in order to focus on God. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that we can implement in our lives as a disciple of Jesus. And today, as I talk about fasting, I want you to think about that fully integrated with prayer 
and also informed and driven by the word. So we don't take fasting in isolation. Fasting is always coupled with prayer and is coupled with the word of God. Prayer draws us near to God. The word of God informs us about how we live our lives as disciples. The motivation for fasting is not religious performance. The motivation for fasting and prayer and the word of God is to draw near to God in devotion to him. Now, fasting is mentioned some 77 times in the Bible. Many of the Old Testament saints fasted. Moses, uh, Samuel, Hannah, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, and so on. The New Testament tells of John the Baptist and his disciples, as we've already seen, Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul, the early church as they were setting aside uh, laborers and trying to send them out into the harvest. At special times, uh, they would fast as a sign of devotion to God. And there are three main forms of fasting that are described in the Bible. The first kind is a normal fast, which includes abstinence from food. The second kind is an absolute fast, which includes abstinence from food and from water or from drink. The third kind is a partial fast, which includes restriction from certain types of food. The Daniel fast would be an example of that. So as we think about the biblical framework for fasting, uh, we think about the normal fast, uh, the absolute fast, and then the partial fast as a potential guideline for our own practice. The principle of fasting may rightly be applied to other aspects of life as well. Uh, if we're not thinking about this in legalistic terms, there might be something else that we're limiting ourselves in for the purpose of focusing on God and drawing near to him. And it might be even further modified than what I explained. So I want us to think through in the next few minutes uh, what the purpose of this really is. And if, in fact, we're going to apply, they will fast in those days to our own day, then what does this all mean? And what is the significance of it? Well, first, fasting is a way to express our dependence on God. Fasting is a way to express our dependence on God. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 made an assumption that his disciples would, in fact, put this into practice. He said, beginning in verse 16, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward, Matthew 6 and verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The words of Jesus, whenever you fast, implies that we will fast as his disciples. Now, by the time Jesus was ministering on the earth, as I've already mentioned, Fasting had been taken beyond the sincere, and it had become a ritual. It had become just a religious activity of sorts. And as a result of it, it had become quite hypocritical. Now listen to this. I want you to hear this. The hypocrite is concerned about what people think about them. That's their primary driving motivation. The person who is faithful is most concerned about what God thinks about them because he knows truly what's in our heart. And we see that contrasted even in this 
practice. The Pharisees who fasted twice a week did so strategically. In fact, they chose the second and the fifth days of the week. Now it's said according to tradition that they chose those days because they were the days that Moses made the two journeys to receive the law of God on Mount Sinai. But what we know is that it was very strategic because those days were also the market days in the cities. Now why would that matter? Well, on the market days, the people would come to gather what they needed. It would be bustling with activity. There would be a lot of people. And the Pharisees, in their time of fasting, when they're making it outwardly apparent that this is what they're doing, everybody would have been able to look at them and see that they were exercising this religious devotion in order to draw attention to themselves. So they would put on a sad face. They would neglect their appearance. Uh, They would cover themselves with dirt and with ashes. Sound familiar? The word hypocrites, which Jesus used here, comes from a word for the mask actors would wear to portray a character. So these people were guilty of theatrics. They were guilty of doing it for the, uh, for the uh, praise of men rather than the praise of God. So what does Jesus do? He gives them instructions on the proper way to fast and indicates that God will bless the right motivation that is paired with the right action. Now, let me just ask you, are you seeking the adoration of men or are you seeking the blessing of God? Are you seeking to be noticed for what you do so that other people will reward you with their words? Or do you want your motivation to come from a pure heart and be blessed by the Lord? Now, unfortunately, this problem continued uh, in church history when we have examples of some of the church fathers talking about the improper use of fasting and uh, people trying to draw attention for themselves. And here's the point. Fasting is not an end. It is instead a way that we can worship God and we can express our dependence on him. And one of the things that happens in fasting is we become keenly aware of our own inadequacies and we become more aware of the adequacy of God. We become more aware of our needs and more aware of God's provision. We become more aware of the needs around us and how God might use us to meet those as well. Isaiah chapter 58, beginning in verse 6, says, Isn't this the fast I choose? to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke. Verse seven, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the poor and the homeless in, to clothe the naked when you see them and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. So in Isaiah, we're told there's a particular manner of fasting that God has chosen that loosens the bonds of wickedness, that undoes heavy burdens, that sets the oppressed free, that provides for those who are in need, that causes the light to break forth and to show the way, that causes health to spring up, And it causes righteousness to go before us and the glory of the Lord to be our rear guard. Fasting prayer in the word is a discipline to strengthen and transform our lives in grace and draw us closer in our relationship with God. 
Listen to how Wesley Duell put it. He said, fasting in the biblical sense is choosing not to partake of food because your spiritual hunger is so deep. Your determination and intercession is so intense or your spiritual warfare so demanding that you have temporarily set aside even fleshly needs to give yourself to prayer and meditation. In fasting, we express our dependence on God. Second, fasting is a way to overcome temptation. It's a way to overcome temptation. Now, our spiritual enemy tries to deceive us, and one of the best techniques that he has that he applies to our lives is he presents to us the short-term benefits of sin without also helping us see the long-term consequences of what we do. So he will put the benefits in front of us that are attractive, they're pleasurable, they draw us in, but then he doesn't tell us what the consequences are going to be behind it. Was that not his original strategy in the Garden of Eden? Was it not his effort in Genesis 3 to tell Eve that the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil would make her wise and that she would be as God, knowing good and evil? The devil was right, partly. But being partly right is to be totally wrong. Because what he failed to mention in that moment is that when they disobeyed God, the consequence was they would surely die. They would suffer spiritual death and then ultimately physical death and separation from God. So temptation shows us something that is pleasurable. We're tempted by our own wants and our own desires. We see something and we think that it is good, but it actually leads us away from something that is truly good. We see the short-term benefit, but we don't recognize the long-term consequences. There's an old illustration Uh, That's supposedly a true story that you've probably heard before, but I think it fits quite well uh, in this context. There's a story about uh, monkeys, actually, that will help us make the point. I am not saying that you all are monkeys. I'm not even saying you're similar to monkeys. I just want you to follow the behavior and see if you could find yourself in this type of temptation. So as the story goes, there was a plague of monkeys that hit some towns in Asia at the turn of the 20th century. The monkeys would invade homes, they would bite people, they would steal food, and the people decided they had to do something to be able to reduce this large number of monkeys in their communities and alleviate the problem. So they had to figure a way out to catch these monkeys, and as you might imagine, they're quite elusive, and it's not the easiest thing to get them in a place where you can easily catch them, particularly without harming them. So they used a traditional method. They took milk jars, and as they gathered those milk jars, they put lollipops down in the bottom of them with a small opening at the top, and the monkeys would be drawn to the smell and to the allure of the lollipops, and they would stick their hand down in it, and they would not let go of the lollipop for anything. And as a result of it, they would be trapped. And that's exactly what happened. They used this technique to clean up their towns and to reduce the number of the monkeys. And I think there's a simple little illustration in this. When the enemy tempts us, he tempts us with things that are appealing. They draw our senses in. They draw our attention in. They draw our actions in. And we take hold of those things and we won't let go of it for any reason. And because of it, we end up suffering the consequences. You see, what we're saying in fasting is that we are letting go of the things that would bind us 
and we're being set free to the things that God would want for our lives. We learned in Luke chapter 3 that at the beginning of the preparation of Jesus in his public ministry, he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And in his time of temptation in the wilderness, Jesus brought together prayer, fasting, and the Word in a strong manner in overcoming the temptation. So if Jesus Christ used prayer and fasting and the Word to overcome temptation, then we should follow after his example as well. After 40 days of this supernatural fast, Jesus was hungry and he was thirsty. He was tempted to act against God's plan and in acting against God's plan to command the stones to become bread. The temptation, you see, was to satisfy legitimate physical needs by selfish means. And Jesus answered the temptation in Luke chapter 4 and verse 4. Man must not live by bread alone. You see, the spiritual side of fasting for us is that it helps us see righteousness more clearly and to be more aware of temptations that come our way. It helps us to see blessing and cursing benefits and consequences. And God shows us the way of escape. You understand that God tempts no man. That's what the Bible says. And not only does God tempt no man, but if we know the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of God indwells us, we are signed, sealed, and delivered uh, for the day of redemption. Our relationship with God is secure. But even in that, God gives us what we need to overcome temptations that come our way. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you will be able to bear it. So you see, God wants you to escape temptation. Jesus told the disciples to pray, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In fasting, through prayer, and coupled with the word, we are strengthened so that we can overcome temptation. And then the third point, fasting is a way to focus on holiness. It's a way to focus on holiness. Now, as I've already mentioned, if you are in Christ, declared righteous in him, your standing with God is secure the good work that God has started in you is the good work that God is going to complete in you. Jesus said that nobody can pluck us out of his hands. We cannot be, because of anything in life, separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So while we know that our relationship with God cannot be taken away from us, our fellowship with God can very much be hindered as we live our lives on this earth. In the days of Samuel, God's people had turned away from pure worship of him. They had made the mistake of marginalizing the presence of God in their midst. And I'm taken aback, as I often am in my own life, with how merciful and patient our God is. You see, for 20 years, they had neglected the ark of God. And yet God called the people back to himself. Are you not amazed at the patience and the mercy of God in your life? I think about this on a routine basis when I think about 
how much God puts up with in my own life and how patient he is to, to bring me along and to, to mold me and to make me more like Jesus. Little by little, it's a progression towards sanctification. And, and I'm so grateful for God's patience and mercy in my life. Samuel called the people back to God and he told them that they would return to God with their whole hearts and they would get rid of the idols to false gods and they would dedicate themselves to worship God and God only that he would rescue them from their enemies, the Philistines. And that's exactly what God did in response to what they did and surrender to him. Listen to what 1 Samuel 7 and verse 5 and following says. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. And they fasted that day, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. Now I want to give you a warning at this point. Be careful about spiritual compromise that leads to spiritual drift. And here's what I mean. There is no such thing as neutral in the Christian life as a disciple. There's no such thing. Either you're moving forward or you're moving backwards. Now, admittedly, sometimes that moving forward is moving forward like a sloth. And it's inch by inch. Sometimes it's a quarter of an inch is what it seems like some days. And sometimes it's just a step forward. And and sometimes it's slow. But the point is, if we're yielded up to the Lord and we're surrendering ourselves to his spirit and and we're walking with him in devotion, there's going to be a progressive growth that the Bible calls sanctification into the likeness of Jesus. Otherwise, we're compromising and we're drifting backwards. We're sinking backwards, not forwards. Listen to what D.A. Carson said. He said, we drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Beware of spiritual compromise that leads you backwards in your walk with God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah called God's people uh, to assemble a fast, to confess their sins, and to request God's forgiveness. The prophet Jonah in Jonah 3, after he had pronounced judgment against the city of Nineveh, the king covered himself with sackcloth and with dust, and he then ordered the people to fast and pray. And Jonah 3 and verse 10 says, when God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. What about Joel 1 and 2, where Joel called for fast of repentance and drawing near to God? See, here's what can happen. If you're willing to focus on what the Lord wants from you, if you're willing to draw near to him and pull back from the things of the world and intensify your focus for a time, whatever that time is, and pray and fast and seek God through his word, he will grow you in your holiness, in your likeness of Jesus. He will help you to be more like him. I want to give you this quote from Andrew Murray. 
And now I'm going to come toward a close of this message. Prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is letting go of all that is seen and temporal. Fasting helps express, deepens, confirms the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. It's a personal sign of surrender and a purposeful drawing near to God so that we might know more of him. Friends, I don't know what your concept is of the Christian faith or what you think it means to be a disciple, but one thing I know for sure, we have overcomplicated things. And so at times we have sacrificed the best for the good. And we have gotten caught up in activities and stuff and doing and busyness. And because we're busy and we're active and we got all this stuff in front of us, we think somehow that's what the Christian life is all about. When in fact, the primary thing God is calling us to is to himself. To know him. This is what being a disciple is. It is life with God. It is being right with your creator. It's being redeemed by your savior. It's being sustained by his spirit. And one of the ways that we can do that is through the application of this spiritual discipline to deny ourselves physically so that we can be filled spiritually with the fullness of God. So that our reliance on him develops. You say, well, I've never really used this as a discipline in my own life spiritually. How, How could I apply this? Well, I'm glad you asked. We've been gathering periodically as a church Uh, on Tuesdays, and we're changing that schedule up a little bit right now. But when we gather, we've been praying. And last month, uh, we added uh, fasting with prayer as well. So the first uh, Tuesday of the month that we meet, uh, we're going to couple that with a time of fasting. And I understand that many of you are scattered out all over the place for your vocations and your responsibilities. And it doesn't matter whether or not you can be here physically with us, but we're going to be communicating Uh, some specific things to be praying for and also couple that with a very simple time of fasting at lunch. So we're starting with uh, some small steps just to remind us of this discipline and how we can apply it to our own lives. And we would invite you to be a part of that uh, starting uh, this Tuesday. But maybe the Lord would say to you, you need to intensify your own devotion just a bit. Maybe you're not steady right now, even in your reading of the word on a daily basis. There's nothing in your life that is demonstrating that you're purposefully leaning into God and desiring to know him and to be near to him. And I want to encourage you today, not as a heavy burden, but as a freeing of the burden, that the most blessed thing you could do is get as close to God as you possibly can. And when you get close to God and you get close to his word and You're empowered by his spirit and you apply some of these disciplines that we find in the Bible and also throughout church history. You'll see your awareness of God grow and your faithfulness to him advance. And that's what we should be seeking as disciples because we've been freed up by grace. And now may we live in light of that grace for the glory of God and for his work to advance. 
Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Here in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and Pastor Eric's going to come and sing with us. And I know enough to know that in a group this size this morning, there are likely some people who have never taken that first step of repentance and faith and come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Maybe today's the day for you that your life eternal is going to begin with God. I invite you to come to Jesus. Maybe as a Christian, you know that uh, you need to lean in more to the Lord. You need to get closer to Him and uh, depend on Him more with your life. Maybe you just ask the Lord to help you, whether it's there in your seat where you are or coming here to the front to pray for a few moments. I can tell you, God, is, God has got something great for you, and He'll bless you. He'll, he'll work in your life. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't make it something that it's not. Understand what it means to live life with God as his child and as a disciple of Jesus. Father, thank you for this word that we've considered this morning. It's, it's a little bit different. It's outside of the context of what we normally think about. But yet it's an example from the life and the ministry of Jesus, which teaches us some things about you and also about ourselves. And I pray that we'd not be guilty of complicating the faith and laying heavy burdens on people and, and making it hard, but we realize that you've come to set us free and that in Christ the heavy burden has been lifted. The, uh, the, the blessing is ours for the taking uh, in our relationship with you. So, Lord, thank you for your patience and mercy in our lives and, and thank you for the grace that saves us and also sustains us. And I pray that as a church, we'd be more and more faithful. And as a result of our faithfulness, that we would see fruit born out in our lives that would bring glory to your name. So we give this time of closing response over to you. And if there are decisions or steps of faith that need to be taken or made today, I pray that people would come. And I ask it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.